I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. On this episode, Daisy Auger Dominguez, who is a DEI expert, workplace futurist, and author of Inclusion Revolution, The Essential Guide to Dismantling Racial Inequity in the Workplace, offers a roadmap of what's worked, what hasn't worked in the past few years of racial reckoning, and a step-by-step guide to make your workplace a more inclusive, optimistic, and equitable environment. Hi, Daisy. Thanks for joining The Second Shift and taking your time to talk about the work that you're doing and your new book. For anyone who doesn't know, Daisy Oje Dominguez is a leader in the DEI world. She's the Chief People Officer at Vice Media, but she also consults with all different companies, has worked at Google and ABC, and she is an expert at this. And she has written a book called The Inclusion Revolution, The Essential Guide to Dismantling Racial Inequity in the Workplace and Reimagining the Workplace. And I love this idea because it's super positive and optimistic about where things are now and where they can go. And I think this is really specific moments in time. We're two years from when all of the protests and Black Lives Matter, George Floyd's murder. So here we are. And it's just a good time to really think about what's been working, what hasn't working, what needs to be done. And this is a really timely and important book. So thank you. really feel like this is super beneficial for our clients, our members, and just to make sure that this conversation is ongoing. Thank you for having me, Jenny. I'm thrilled to be here. Okay, so we know that inclusivity in the workplace increases the idea of belonging, increases retention, increases innovation, and is ultimately really productive. Like the numbers show that it's it's beneficial to the bottom line of businesses. So what are you hearing from the business world about what needs to be done and what's worked, what hasn't worked, and how they should be really rethinking the DEI world? Oh, goodness. There's so much to that. Jenny. I mean, that's like a really big question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can start in small chunks. How about, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding, right? We know that it works and what works and what doesn't work. Absolutely. So I, I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about that. And, and just for those who may not know my background, I have spent the latter part of, you know, my career building inclusive, equitable and diverse workplaces in media and technology and finance. And, you know, and I've seen what works and what doesn't. I've seen failed attempts. I've seen so much genuine commitment and interest in doing this work. And, you know, and particularly in the last two years, what I think many of us have seen is that when a wave of civil unrest followed the murder of George Floyd two years now, yesterday was the anniversary of of his death, many corporations and organizations swooped into this charged discourse around racial justice and you know proclaimed solidarity proclaimed support for all of these social justice issues 
And yet two years later, Jenny, we are in the same place, sadly, in so many organizations. And part of what doesn't work is making commitments without actually doing the work, <laughs> is, is saying Yes, jumping on the bandwagon with what everybody else is saying without actually spending deep time reflecting on who you are as an organization, who you are as an individual, what is the change that you want to make. And that is in part what inspired me to write Inclusion Revolution. And the way that it is framed is precisely around a big focus on reflecting on what you want to solve for. Not just what needs to be solved for, but what you want to solve for. And the reason why I make that distinction is that many of us walk into rooms and are part of this social discourse around driving social justice change and meritocracy. Sadly, right now, you know, in the last couple of days and in the wake of the brutal shooting in Uvalde in Texas, you know, a lot of people are talking about, well, you know, every parent wants their child to be safe. Like, shouldn't we all coalesce around that? It's like, well, yes. And we all want children to be safe, but are we willing to sacrifice our comfort for the comfort of someone else? Are we willing to sacrifice our children for, for some, some other, you know, for someone else's children? And those are the real hard and uncomfortable and kind of icky questions, Jenny, that we're not willing to ask ourselves. So I think that what doesn't work is to summarize quickly for you, and I'm happy to go into more detail, is jumping to action before reflection, is making commitments. It's not listening to your employees. I think a lot of, a lot of what happened in the last two years is what I've seen time and again in every company that I work for, all of these decisions being made up here while the pain points, the sore spots are felt down here in the organization. And you're solving for what you think needs to be solved for, but the experiences of these individuals not changing a whole lot. (laughs) They see it, they read about all of these amazing things you're doing and they're looking around and going, I'm still not advancing at the rate that I should be advancing, not being paid what I should be paid, not being treated fairly and respectfully. And yet everybody feels that they're so busy doing and they're not actually solving for what needs to be solved for. So what you're saying is posting something on social media, taking a vow of solidarity and, you know, putting everyone through diversity training fails. That is not actually time and again. Time and again, I want to, I want to acknowledge those things can work in conjunction with an actual strategy, with actual commitment, right? It's not about, can we do those things, but is, are we willing to do the things that are going to truly move the needle? I think what's hard for a lot of companies is that this is something that is both a long game strategy, but also something that takes everyday work. And you cannot take your eye off the prize. And, you know, there's a new fire in the corporate world every day. And those are things that you feel like, okay, we have to deal with this. We have to deal with the budget. We have to deal with these things. We're doing it, but it it can't be the focus of everything because that's not, you know, the bottom line. But ultimately, it does affect the bottom line. The statistics prove that out, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I think it's and my framework for this work is very much centered on, to your point, the business cycles that we operate in, right? The business realities that we're in. You know, one of the biggest obstacles to this work is often how much we stop doing it the minute everything else becomes 
urgent, right? We focus on all of the urgent things and we don't focus on the necessary things, right? And that's, and that's part of the human condition. And I saw it happen, frankly, in the spring of 2020, before George Floyd was murdered, I started writing about this. I started you know, just seeing how DNI budgets were being shrunk the minute that companies started to see the economy weakening and you know starting to see the the effects of the pandemic and then George Floyd was murdered and then all of a sudden people found budget right people found money people found attention to deal with what what was urgent in that moment right we keep on dealing with the urgent but because we're dealing with these in ad hoc ways we're not building the conditions and the systems and the processes that are going to maintain this work to your point on a consistent basis and that are going to what I call bake it into the DNA of an organization so that you can't escape that equity is always part of your pay decisions, right? You know, we just we just completed our third annual pay equity study advice. I've only been here for two years. They've done it before I got here, but our consultants looked at us this time and said, you don't need to do it again next year. You can actually skip it and do this now on a biannual basis because you've baked in these health checks and these systems already that we don't have these egregious gaps that we had when we first started doing this work. And it wasn't rocket science. All we did is we built it into our compensation philosophy. We built it into our compensation practice. We built it into our job architecture and our job leveling so that every time a decision is made, we are looking to the right and we're looking to the left, right? You know, how does this compensation decision potentially have a negative or positive impact, whatever impact it, on those who are doing the same work at the same level with the same capacity? And to your point around, these are decisions we make every day. This isn't something that we do once a year. This is something that we do once a quarter. It is every time we make decisions, yes, big decisions like merit and promotion cycles, but day-to-day decisions like we're hiring Jenny into this job. This is what Jenny would like to get paid. But if she gets paid this, then she's going to be completely skewed one way or the other. How do we build this into the right compensation package so that she's fairly compensated vis-a-vis her partners and colleagues? And that we are understanding and looking at it, trying to reduce bias because, Jenny, there's bias in every decision that we make. We're humans. We We can't avoid it. It is what it is. But we can bust those biases, right? We can put processes in place as simple as you know, you, you may be coming in and having been severely underpaid for many years in your job, coming into a role, but we're not going to pay you what you were being paid. We're going to pay you what is right for that job and the market that you're in and the role and discipline that you're in. That's equity. So it is putting equity at the forefront of decision-making and everything from your pay to your hiring, to your performance management. This is how you build diverse and equitable workplaces. But this means that you have to be at it. You have to and you have to bake it into your DNA, your structures, your processes. Everybody has to be part of it. And everybody has to be willing to challenge and push back with the right, you know, I call, I call them the guardrails, right? These are the guardrails that we use. We can be really creative in between, but in order to be equitable, we're going to stay within these guardrails. And you outline a multi-step process. So if no one's a big organization that maybe doesn't have this, you know, a you uh, or or the systems in place to really be able to do this on scale, you're breaking it down for companies in this book so that they can do it at, for a business at any scale, even a small startup. So if you could walk through that for me. Sure. So I, you came up with this structure and what it is. Yes. So I have, I have a framework that is a four-step framework. 
and I've tested this, Jenny, for many, many years. <laughs> um, and, you know, and it's it's somewhat what I, what I was sharing earlier. The first stage is reflection. And this is the time where you as an individual, as a leader, a manager, an individual contributor, whatever role you play, this is where you spend time really asking yourself the tough questions. What does diversity, equity, and inclusion mean to me? Why does it matter to me? What are the conditions that I want to create in the organization? What is it that scares me about this? What confuses me about this? What excites me about this, right? This is where you really spend time thinking about it and you do it vis-a-vis your colleagues and others in the organization because your experience can be dramatically different from someone else's experience. And you may have been able to rise in your career with very few obstacles. And so you have blinders as to what are the obstacles and challenges that somebody else may be facing. So this is also where you collect employee survey data when you actually, you know, and if, and if you're not a big company, to your point, where you ask people, right? Where you just, you know, I, I often say the question that often, that I was most often asked when I was moving up my career as a DNI practitioner, was well, Daisy, how do we make workplaces more diverse? And the question I would have loved people to ask me is, Daisy, what are the biggest obstacles to your success as a woman of color? And how can I help reduce them? It's a very different question. You know, we we tend to ask, well, how many more diverse people can we bring to the organization? Inverse, but the other question that we should be asking is: what are the conditions that we have created so that this organization is predominantly white? Right? It's a very different way of looking at it, but it would eventually yield very different solutions and answers. And so it's taking this time to, to think about this. And this is, you don't need budget for this. <laughs> you don't need, you don't need, you know, a big facilitator. I, you know, I, I love my colleagues who are consultants. I don't want them to be mad at me, but you don't need a big facilitator to do this. You can actually do this. I'm a big promoter of doing this work you know, with the resources you have in front of you. I was like, let's, we've got really bright, smart minds. Let's do this work together and let's push ourselves to get to the right answers. Once you've done that, the second stage is, is visualize. And in corporate speak, this is where you build your strategic plan, right? This is where you say, these are my KPIs. These are the metrics that I want to measure. These are the goals that I want to achieve. And in order to do that, you know, I, I, I have visualized what the end goal is and I am going to build all of the right stages and milestones, key milestones, all the business talk, right, to get to that. And this is such an important part because we usually skip, if we are good at getting the, the questions and answers, we usually skip the stage to the action part. But this is the time when you really, you start building your toolkit and you start building and you start thinking about what am I missing? What goes next? The next step is action. And this is the one that everyone's really good at, Jenny. This is diversity recruiting. This is diversity training. This is performance management. This is pay equity initiatives. This is, you know, putting out your social media and you're, you know, creating diverse communications and marketing strategies. This is the stuff that we see. I call it all the things. This This is the feel good stuff. This is the feel good. Yeah. These are all the things, which they're not bad things. But without actually having a strategy that you're building towards and an actual, you know, and without having clarity on what you're trying to achieve, all they are are all the good things that you can say, I've done that. Why are you mad at me? <laughs> why are people, you know, why are people yelling at me? But I was like, but I've been advocating for this for a long time. It's like, well, there's a difference between awareness and action, right? Because sitting in awareness is not enough. This is where you say, this is what I'm going to do. And again, to go to your point around whether you're in a big company or a small company, I know I've always worked in large companies with the exception of now Vice, um, which is its own mighty little company. But I'll say that this is where 
You decide what you want to do. It doesn't have to be grand. I am actually a big believer in one thing at a time, putting one foot in front of the other. I am going to help support the diversity recruiting efforts. I am going to help support our diversity marketing efforts. I am going to help in product development because that's what I can influence, right? That's that's my sphere of influence. And I am an expert in this area. And in this area, I am going to try and think about how can we add inclusion to our thinking? How can we add equity to our thinking? All of us can do that, Jenny. This is the revolution. People often ask me, why did you call it inclusion revolution? It's like the revolution has always been about building the workplaces that work for everyone, that we all want. And it's the revolution is all of us doing this work together in small and big ways, in this corner, in this corner, but all of us doing it together towards that end. It doesn't mean that I have to do all of it. It simply means that I'm doing my part to call out, an injustice if it needs to be called out, to address an imbalance if it needs to be addressed, to support a colleague that is being marginalized and or discriminated against. We all can do that every single day. So that's the actions piece. And then the last part of the, you know, my my four stage plan that I, you know, that I that I absolutely love is persist. And this one, in many ways, I always say, you know, I, I have one daughter, so I've never had to choose between children. <laughs> but if I have to choose, persist is my favorite step because it's the hardest. And I, you know, I have, I, I, I like things that are that that are challenging. It's hard because there will always be resistance to this work. Resistance, and you you alluded to it earlier. Resistance comes in the forms of reduced budgets. Resistance comes in the form of people ignoring you or outright you know, stopping you from doing what you need to do. Resistance comes in the form of, you know, people saying, you know, this works, but we're going to try this. We'll get to it later, right? That I have been told that so many times over my career. It's like, Daisy, we can solve for that later. It's like, no, we can still solve for that now. It's a matter of about how do we, how do we integrate it into what is, what is most urgent now and necessary for us as an organization. And so persist is that place where you really hunker down and say, okay, These are my values. This is what I've committed to. I've done the work. I've done the reflection. I've visualized. I've tested a few things. Let me iterate. Maybe I didn't do this the right way. Maybe I didn't bring in the right stakeholders. Maybe I didn't message this in a way that made sense for folks, right? This is where you go back and you say, what can I iterate on, right? Because I know what my end goal is, but I need to test my own assumptions about what works and doesn't. And so that's the four-step process of reflect, visualize, act, and persist. I love it. So if you are an employee at a company and you're not one of the decision makers, you're just a you know, worker who's not seeing any of those promises really fulfilled in on their day to day. And how can you start this revolution at work yourself without, you know, there's a lot of fear and about taking that risk and speaking up and like being canceled or being fired in these days. Like, you know, anything you say, you can you can get your head chopped off. So how do you tell people to, to take that risk and be the one who starts a revolution? Oh, goodness. Um, there's never been a better time to build a revolution. This is, we are in the biggest reorientation of work that any of us have ever lived through. This, we are reimagining what, what work looks like. And this is an opportunity to truly reimagine it and not go back to the old playbooks. What I'm seeing a lot of organizations do is in the last two years, everybody was testing so many great things and everybody, and now we're going back and it's like, wait, wait, but I want everybody back in the office and I want everybody to do this and I want everything the way that I've always been comfortable doing things. Well, it doesn't have to be. And employees have 
tremendous voice right now. But I want to say it's not just employees. Inclusion Revolution was actually written for the middle manager in mind. And I did that because most of the literature on this work either focuses on, on leaders, right? Because leaders have power and, you know, they set the tone, but very little. And then others have been on individuals, you know, as, as people of color, as, you know, whatever your, you know, unique identity is, how do you make it in the workplace, right? Like, how do you survive workplaces? How can you, how can you do this? I wanted to write a book that was intended for the manager who thinks they don't have any power, but have all the power because they are the ones who set the experience for their team members. They are the ones who shape what life is for you in your workplace, whether it's remote or in person. They have such a unique opportunity to really change both the mindsets at the top and to create conditions for those under them that can allow them to truly thrive. And that to me is such a unique place where that addresses both the individual and the systemic, because we have to look at the two, right? I can spend all day long trying to change hearts and minds, but if I'm not changing systems and processes, we're still dealing with the exact same issues that we had in organizations. So what you can do as an individual, you know, and, and as a, and, and let me, let me also acknowledge the biggest stumbling block in this work is fear. And I've written, I wrote a piece on HBR about this, the, what stops us from doing this work, I meet so many well-intended, kind people at all levels of their careers. And what stops them from doing this work is fear. Fear of being canceled, fear of not being heard, fear of, you know, if you're a person of color or, or marginalized employee already of being further diminished or worse, you know, losing your job, fear of being wrong, right? Fear of losing your status. If you're a senior leader and going, wait, but I'm supposed to be like, having them take my job. So then what happens to me? All of these fears that we don't always say out loud, but we're always feeling them. And they they become that paralyzing place in our tummy, right? That where we just get like, no, I, I want to help, but I, I really quite can't. And it's acknowledging that fear and testing those fear modes. You know, yes, you can get canceled quite easily now. And by the way, I'm, I have a chapter that talks about accountability that talks about how much I loathe cancel culture. I believe in calling people in. I believe in driving change. I believe that there are some people that should be canceled when they are horrible human beings that, you know, commit atrocious acts. Absolutely. But there's a difference. And I think that we have gotten to the place of, if I say something, I'm going to be canceled. It's like, no, there's a difference between as a manager, for example, I'll give you this example. I have a lot of managers who in the wake of George Floyd, we're trying to figure out, you know, how to manage their employees of color. And I had a white manager once who came up to me and said, it was like, I have to give, you know, really tough performance uh, review to this black woman on my team. I don't know how to do it. And I looked at him and I said, well, have you never delivered <laughs> tough performance? That's your job. <laughs> this is exactly what you're doing. You're actually doing a disservice to this employee by not giving her the feedback that she needs so that she can perform well in her job. And you are using her being a person of color, a woman, whatever the identity pieces that are not yours, this was this happened to be a white man, as an excuse for not doing your job. But that doesn't stop you. For example, two weeks ago, it didn't stop you from yelling at me when you thought your pay was wrong on your pay stub. <laughs> and you called me and yelled at me, you know, you know, in a horrible way and never even apologized for doing that. But now you're actually questioning what you should be doing. There's a difference between setting the right expectations for your team and worrying about meeting the wrong expectations. And we spend so much time going like, well, they want all of this. I'm like, well, if it's not reasonable, it's perfectly reasonable to say, 
It's not reasonable. And here's why. <laughs> and here, and let's find a place where we can find a you know, potential middle ground. But it is my job to do this. And we often just get stuck in this fear. And when you are someone that has less power and privilege in an organization, which, you know, as a woman, you know, a woman of color, the youngest person in most teams when I started my career, that was me all along. You know, I didn't do things alone. I did things in partnership, right? I found mentors and sponsors who would advocate for me, who would be the ones that would say it because when they said it, people heard them. When I said it, it was just me, wham, 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 right? I had leaders that would plus one me when I made an idea, when I, you know, proposed an idea. When I say something as a junior employee or as a person of color in a group, it kind of gets heard. But when a white man or a white woman or someone in power says, hey, Daisy, that's a great idea, I immediately get credentialized. I immediately move to a level where people are listening to it differently. So it's about strategically positioning what you want to do and how you want to do it in partnership with others so that you're not creating an exposure for yourself that could be dangerous, but you're still finding a place to deliver your message and moving the needle for your organization. It's so fraught, the whole experience. I mean, on every side. It's fraud. And I understand from a lot of the different sides where that fear comes from, because well-intentioned people are afraid. People who are powerless are afraid. People on the, you know, who run the organization are, are afraid because, you know, one false step and your, you know, advertising's gone and your company loses value. There's so many ways in which it is a place that is like perilous. But what you're advocating, which I think is so great, is really a almost like common sense approach in this day, right? It's just common sense. And what you're saying is too, like, we don't all have to like assume the worst of each other or assume that you're going to get sued, called out, whatever. If their environment is one where there's like some context and we're trying and you're, and you're bringing and you're vulnerable and you're, you're bringing people in and including them in the inclusion revolution. So I really applaud you for that because some in this day and age, I think so much is that you hear only from the most like vocal, angry and polarized. You don't always hear from the like, okay, but we can do this. And here's how we're going to do it optimistically. And here's how we're going to do it and be smart about it and rational. It's just rational. Right. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, is listen, there's a lot to be angry about. There's a lot to be hurt about. There's a lot to be upset about. And there's room for all of that. And then there's room for, okay, and how do we move forward? And it also doesn't always help. No, it, does, it doesn't. And I think- It doesn't help to get it out there, but it doesn't actually help to make the change. To drive, to drive the change. And I think that there's, listen, there's space for agitation. I, I want to be very clear. There's space for those who are out there calling out what needs to be called out. I've always been on the inside. So I've always applauded the agitators and then come back inside and said, okay, how are we going to build what we need to build internally to address what those pain points that are being called out, right? There's, there's a place for all of us in this. And if you want to be an internal revolutionary, if you will, which is, you know, what I'm advocating for. And, and, and I think that, and again, I want to be very clear. I'm very supportive of, and I have a lot of friends who are those agitators who are out there. There's a space for that because sometimes you have to really put things in front of people for them to recognize it. Sadly, George Floyd's murder was what ignited a global racial reckoning. But Jenny, you and I know this has been happening for 
decades and hundreds of years. Black lives have been diminished for hundreds of years. It took this moment, this universal moment for people to realize, oh, racism exists. We need to do this. And what I told everyone that I worked, you know, once we were all able to deal with the emotionality of all of it was like, okay, well, then how do we not let a good crisis go to waste? Because this is our time to build the right infrastructure, the right commitment, the right investment in this work. And that is the mindset. So there is a rational way of looking at this work, but rationalization doesn't mean that you don't take into account the human aspect of this work, the heart aspect of this work, the pain and the anguish. You can They can coexist. You can actually be able to acknowledge someone's pain and someone's and realize and, and say, and we're going to drive this change. What you can't do is all of a sudden decide that you have that relationship to do that. Here's what happens in some organizations, which is where people get frustrated. And they're like, but they're not listening to me. I want to be of help. It's like, well, they're not listening to you because you never bothered to build relationship with them. And so right now you're just coming at them, telling them you want to be helpful. And they're going, well, can I trust you? We've never built trust. We've never built relationship. And trust is a two-way street, to be fair. It's got to be built between the two of them. But when you are, and this is what you had said earlier on, when you are part of trying to do this work, when you are intentionally trying to do this, when you are giving each other grace for messing up, I just wrote an HBR article that said just that. I was like, we all mess up in this work. I mess up in this work all of the time. But you know what allows me to continue to do this? The people around me they know the consistency in my work, right? Trust is consistency over time. They know where my heart is in this work. They know where my mind is in this work. And I acknowledge where I've made missteps and where I need to learn and grow. And I make sure I don't make the same mistakes over and over again. And that's part of, we get stuck in this, well, nobody wants to listen to us. I was like, well, maybe you don't need to be telling people what you're going to do. Maybe right now you just need to be listening. Maybe right now you just need to be relationship building so that when the next crisis comes, you have built in that equity of relationship and you can say, okay, let's hold hands and let's do this together. I really like your point of view and the perspective that you bring. And I look forward to reading that article. So I'm going to post that because acknowledging missteps and forgiveness and saying, I don't know all the answers, but we're trying is a really big part of this too, because that mitigates that fear. Mm-hmm. If you're able to say, okay, but like we're making, we're making an effort. We're trying, you know, you doesn't, things don't happen overnight and people make mistakes and you make bad choices or you had good intentions, but it didn't work out that way. So I want to let you go. Cause I know this is a busy morning and I appreciate you being here, but if you had one last final thing to tell like the business community about the benefit, the, the potential benefit to your company for putting in the time, the effort, the intention of this work, what would be the the one like headline? Well, right now, I don't know any leader who is not worried about recruitment and retention. (laughs) This is what is occupying every business leader's top mind and, and whether you're in a nonprofit or any organization. So I would say it is possible for people to be hired in an organization to be included in important meetings, to be asked to speak, and still to not feel that people like them belong there. And it is your job as a manager, a leader, and an individual contributor to ensure that everyone that you work with feels that they are part of the fabric of your organization and that they understand why they work, where they work, and for what purpose. Because that is what's going to allow you to both recruit and retain the very best talent 
It's going to allow you to do the work that you are meant to do in this world. I love it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I, I love your point of view, and I hope this was really beneficial. Oh, wait, hold on one second. I see we have, we have two questions. If you have oh, one yes. more second. What would you say is the difference between an ally, a sponsor, and a mentor? And what uh, about the role of government? Do you think that there should be government incentives for employees who may not know how or how to do this kind of work? Oh, I What's love it. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll do the definition. So a mentor is someone that provides guidance coaching, support, and unique points in your career. They are the ones that you go to when you're having a question about a project that you're working on, some you know political maneuverings on your team and whatnot. A sponsor is a person that actually puts their equity on the line for you. They're the ones that put your name in hats that you don't even know exist for jobs and opportunities. They're the ones that pick up the phone and say, hey, Jenny just took on this new high potential role and she could benefit from having a talk with you so that you can help her navigate this road, help her understand you know, the unwritten rules in your workplace. There's research that's been written about the fact that women are over-mentored and under-sponsored, right? Some women that I know will tell me, I don't want to be mentored. I want to be sponsored. I think there's a there's room for both and we need a, we need a bit of both. But the sponsors are the ones that are really going to... You know, put their equity on the line and say, this is the person that needs to be our next CFO. This is the person that needs to be our next CMO. And this is how we're, and I'm, and I'm here to make that happen. An ally is someone, my favorite definition of allyship is someone who sacrifices their own comfort for the comfort of others. An ally is not someone that just, you know, puts an A in the back and says, hey, I'm an ally, I do this. They do the work. They do the work by trying to understand both their power, their privilege, and that of others around them and how they can lend it when it's feasible, how they can, you know, borrow it when it's needed, how they can support others. My other word, you, you didn't ask this word, but my, my other favorite word is co-conspirator. A lot of people talk about allies as, you know, the folks who do all these, you know, nice acts of, uh, of support. A co-conspirator is the person that actually like holds your hand and says, we're going to do this together, right? They're the ones that are they use, and it's somewhat like a sponsor, but I would say it's 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 a bit even stronger than a sponsor because they're the ones that are not just getting you the jobs and the roles that, that you need for your advancement or that, you know, that you may not have access and opportunity to otherwise, but they're the ones that are also in the meetings agitating, right? They're in these corporate board meetings. They're in these senior leadership and executive leadership meetings saying, hey, why have we not thought of this when we think about equity for the organization? Why are we bringing in the same voices over and over again for our next town hall? Why don't we bring in voices that have never been seen before? They're the ones that are agitating from the inside. A co-conspirator to me is, you know, is that person that's in the fight with you. And then in terms of the government, the fact of the matter is that there have been, you know, government, there's been government support for this for a long time. I think in some ways it's supportive and in some ways it isn't. Affirmative action is a, is a government support. This is, this is how this work started to begin with. My concern with having the government step into the way that corporations should operate and treat their employees is that it ends up becoming more of a compliance matter than an actual operational matter. And compliance goes just so far, but when you bake things into how you operate as an organization, right? Your core operating principles, your core uh, behavioral principles, that's when you really see change, I believe, that is sustainable. I hope that's helpful. I love that. Thank you. That was so helpful. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time and good luck on the rest of the tour. And thanks for stopping by the second shift to talk to 
to talk to us about this inclusion revolution. This is going to go up on our blog and uh, all over social media. So we'll put links in, in all your articles as well. So keep doing the good work and the good fight. Thank you so much for having me. And same to you. Take care, Daisy. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women.